Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. First, we're peeling back the layers on a topic that's gripping our nation. The parental rights movement is making waves, but is everything as it seems? Rachel Gilmore, an expert voice in the midst of this political tumult, is here to shed light on this crucial issue. Navigating the tricky terrains of parent-teen relationships can often feel like navigating a maze blindfolded. Ali Payne, our beacon in this intricate dance of emotions, is here to guide us on fostering strong, understanding bonds with our teens and, oh yeah, getting them out of bed in the morning. Thoughts and prayers to all parents of teens out there this week. Switching gears a little, who's up for a trip down the cinematic lane? This week, Anne Brody brings us a horror delight that's not your typical scarefest. With a star-studded cast and humor that resonates, it's a perfect movie for that Labor Day relaxation. And while we're at the movies, Anne has got a few more up her sleeve for you. Ever wondered about the shadows of the internet or how to shield yourself from the ever-looming threat of cyber attacks? Look no further. Kim Crawley, self-described nerd and guardian of the cyber realm, joins me to enlighten us about the enigmatic world of hackers. As the day ends and nightfall beckons, who amongst us hasn't experienced the mysterious 3 a.m. wake-up call? Kelly Boss, our guide into the human psyche, unravels this nocturnal mystery for us and offers some solutions for drifting back to sleep. And lastly, the music industry, a realm of dreams, passion, and often relentless challenges. Tara Shannon, a beacon of inspiration, shares her journey teaching us how to not just wade through but thrive in the world of music. So stick around as we embark on this enlightening journey, a perfect wrap-up to your summer. Let's make this Labor Day weekend a blend of relaxation, reflection, and rejuvenation. Right here on 105.9 The Region. Let it be. Let it be. In our first interview today, we're diving into a topic that's got me absolutely fired up. We're talking about the so-called parental rights movement that's sweeping across Canada, and let me tell you, it's not what it seems. To help us unpack this, we have Rachel Gilmore, an award-winning independent journalist who covers politics and the growing culture wars here in Canada and globally. Rachel, welcome back to the show, and, and let's get right into it because people need to know what's really going on here. Yeah, it's it's pretty scary what we're seeing. We're we're kind of seeing these uh this parental rights rhetoric that is the epitome of the culture wars in the education setting in the US come to Canada. It's very scary. And it's it's a Trojan horse really, right? It, they're targeting the most vulnerable of the vulnerable. And yeah. and what does this mean? So Parental rights on their face don't sound like a bad thing. You know, parents care about their kids. They want to know what's going on with them. And in most ways, that's not a terrible thing. But the problem is when you consider the fact that some parents 
are, you know, parents are people, some are homophobic, some are transphobic. And so when it comes to their kids and their kids' gender identity, their sexual orientation, not every home is a welcoming place for that. So what we're seeing is this growth in parental rights, so-called movements that are a direct response to the growing trans acceptance and students feeling comfortable coming out and exploring their identity and having these conversations. And maybe school is the only safe space where they can start to explore that because home is not. And so it's kind of this dark thing where these policies that require, you know, and we can dig into those a bit more in a second, but these policies um, that we're seeing in New Brunswick and Saskatchewan that require parental consent for pronoun use in schools, those can take away the only safe space that some of these these students have. Yeah, you know, and as a parent, you know, I think about it, if if your kids come to you with, you know, their gender identity, that means they have a safe space at home. And if they don't come to you, probably means you're not a safe space. So maybe the, the questioning should be in your home and how you're parenting. But we've seen the Conservative Party really doubling down on culture wars provincially right now. I mean, even Stephen Lecce was alluding to this and and will undoubtedly be a focus at the upcoming federal Conservative um, convention coming up. So what's what's the end game? What are they striving for here? I honestly think that some parties believe they have a political winner here um, because it's not an issue that I think a lot of parents are super well versed in. It's something that sounds scary. Schools are keeping something from you. They're talking to your kids and, you know, they're keeping secrets. And it sounds bad when you put it like that. But what it is in reality is these these are policies that actually take away these kids as I mentioned, safe spaces. They are policies that, um, you know, are directly harmful to kids that don't have safe, safe homes. And, um, I, I think that the end game potentially could be, um, as I mentioned, a political win. There was this, um, study done in the U.S. and it was published in the New York Times where these individuals were looking at, um, conservative groups were looking at trying to find a political winner of an issue. So they used to have gay marriage that they could use to rally their base and get donations. And they started polling on other issues once gay marriage was settled in the Supreme Court. And they found that trans rights issues when it comes to youth resonated with their audience. And so I think that a lot of conservative groups believe that the issue of trans rights in schools, trans rights with youth, it's a political winner. And so we're starting to see that leak into Canadian conservative circles. And it's scary because fundamentally, it puts trans kids lives at even greater risk. And that's where I want to go with this this next part is because that is the real crux of this is that this is going to cost lives. Do you have any statistics or anything you can share in terms of that when it comes to trans kids? Yeah, so there's this group called the Trevor Project that um, does a lot of surveys into LGBTQ mental health and youth mental health. And they found that I believe, um, I'm just pulling these figures off the top of my head, but I believe it's 45% of LGBTQ youth have considered suicide, um, seriously considered suicide. And that figure rises to more than half when it comes to transgender and non-binary youth. So these groups are even more at risk already. But the one thing that kind of mitigates and reduces that risk is when those kids have access to an LGBTQ affirming space. And what's scary about this is 
these policies take away what could potentially be the only affirming space that these kids have access to. And if that is what reduces suicide rates, taking that away, it increases them. Kids will die because of these policies. And I, I don't know why these politicians aren't listening to all of the people who are saying that because they're being told again and again and again, if they just listen to the people who are studying these issues, they will know that they've got a, an incredibly dangerous policy on their hands here that will threaten kids' lives. And that scares me. It's, it's very politically craven to push past these warnings. And and what's crazy about this to me is these are pronouns we're talking about. They're yes. pronouns. We're not talking about surgery. We're not talking yeah. about anything bigger than that. These are pronouns that kids want to use in school of space they consider safe. And we're, we're denying them this. So let's talk about their rights because they do have rights under the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Yeah. I mean, kids are human beings. <laughs> human beings have rights. Um, you know, I, I'm not incredibly well versed in all of the individual aspects of the charter, but you know, in, in the same vein, it, kids aren't property. So parents don't have a right to know every single thing that's going on in these kids' lives, to know every single little conversation that they have, to know, oh, did my son go on a date last week? Did my daughter, you know, hold hands with a boy at school. Like it, we don't have a live feed going of schools for parents to check in at every second of the day. And it's healthy for kids to have their own lives, to have things going on that, you know, isn't that their parents don't need to read their diaries, for example. That's another thing that people really oppose. And this is sort of the policy equivalent of forcing parents to read their kids' diaries. It's it's really a violation of these kids' autonomy and the fact that they are people. They're people with their own set of rights. Do you think there's going to be a, an onslaught of, of lawsuits if, if they implement these policies? I mean, New Brunswick tried to do this and, and it failed. Saskatchewan's come out, now Ontario. Do you think they will fail in those provinces as well? And, and why are they doing it knowing that New Brunswick just failed in this attempt? I, I mean, I think they're doing it because they feel they have a political winner on their hands. And even if it fails, they can blame that on the courts and say, well, we tried to do it. We tried to protect you. And, you know, we're already seeing to a certain extent some of the politicization of the courts that is happening down south happen here. I mean, Jordan Peterson is uh, politicizing the courts through his College of Psychologists decision. He's called them his courts <laughs> um, without saying who his is. But, you know, he's probably alluding to Trudeau. Um, so, you know, we see this sort of politicization happening. And I wouldn't be surprised if we continue to see that as a trend where, you know, these conservative politicians use the rhetoric that they believe will help them politically and don't let courts stop them from claiming ownership over that rhetoric. Good grief, Rachel. I'm telling you, there is a name that I, I have avoided to mention on this show. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's it's a scary name. <laughs> so people are listening right now. I know my my listeners are filled with empathy and compassion and they want to do something. So what can people do to stay informed and take action against these really harmful, really harmful policies? I think, um, first and foremost, you can write to your elected politicians. You can write to the provincial um, education ministers, the premiers, um, your local MPP, um, depending on which province you're in. Um, 
and tell them that you're not okay with this and you don't want this. Another thing you can do is educate yourself on what is actually the issue at hand here, because I think a lot of people don't understand that um, the the policies that we're seeing put in place, it is just, it's about pronouns, which are not something that, you know, you can change your pronoun on any second. It's not an unchangeable permanent surgery or anything along those lines. You know, it's a small thing that affirms these people's existence. And um, I think that the more people who understand that and who understand that it's not about you as a parent, it's about the parents who aren't safe. Your kid, if you have a good relationship with them, they will tell you, you will already know it's not going to be an issue for you. It's just protecting other kids. So I think a lot of people really look at it from a personal perspective and don't realize that it's, it's about a collective safety. So educate yourself so that you can have these conversations. So you can explain to your friends what's actually going on. And, you know, if we let facts win and let empathy win, um, I think that we can save kids' lives. Yeah. And as a parent, I just want to add in here as a final thought, you know, as kids are going back to school, you know, talk to your kids about this, talk to your kids about, uh, you know, making sure they are giving these kids safe spaces and and protecting them as well, because they really do need allies uh, right now more than ever, and particularly in the schools. So Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. And I hope we'll have you back soon. But in the meantime, you are putting it out there every day. So where can people find you? <laughs> yeah, so I'm on TikTok at Rachel underscore Gilmore. I am on Twitter, unfortunately, still at <laughs> at Rachel Gilmore. Um, I have a link tree there where you can find all my other social medias, but the other big ones, Instagram, r.gilmore. All right. Incredible. Thank you, Rachel. We'll have you back soon. Thanks for having me. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. often find themselves at a crossroads when it comes to understanding and managing the changing dynamics with their teens, especially during those crucial morning hours when the challenge is to get them up and out the door for school. Today, we are joined by our very own expert on the parent-teen relationship, Allie Payne. Allie has dedicated her expertise to empowering parents to understand and connect with their teens through open and honest conversations, fostering respectful, healthy relationships. Allie, this is one uh, one thing that is going to drive parents crazy this month, so let's get into it. (laughs) Oh, it is like the back to school nemesis that has parents already like reaching for whatever their coping skill is because this one is, a, <laughs> this is Herculean, this one. Yeah. So thank you so much for having me because I do think this is so, I mean, any, if your teen is anywhere from um, 13 ish, you know, all the way to perhaps they're living with you with, for university or college. So we're talking early adolescent, uh, early adulthood, sorry, as well, because their brain is the same. So quickly, I want to explain why this happens. As part of the adolescent brain development, their circadian rhythm flips up to two hours. So if your child normally went to bed at 10, they'd have difficulty falling asleep until about 12. 
they also have extraordinary difficulty waking up at 6, 6.37 to get to school, which is the bane of my existence. And yes, there are studies on making school times later for junior and senior high, and the success rates are fantastic. And yet, anyway, we won't get into that because we can't change that right here, right now. So um, there is strategies. Here's a couple of the top strategies that I use. Number one, You've got to support healthy sleep habits, which are extraordinarily difficult, I understand, but limiting access to Wi-Fi and apps that are keeping them up all night and stimulating their brain so they have difficulty falling asleep until 3 and 4 a.m. is not helping. So rather than, you know, drop the gauntlet, just let them know we understand this is difficult. Um, this is This can be very hard. It's really important during school hours that we get enough sleep. And, and they'll say, well, I can't get to sleep. Well, yes, because your brain's been trained that way. So we're going to have to turn the internet off at about 11 or midnight, and it still might take a while or give them access to meditation or apps or calming, things like that. The biggest thing I can say to you is this. Stop waking them up in the morning. Now, I know what you just said. I, I heard you. I know what you just said. Well, if I don't wake them up, they won't get up, and then they're going to miss school, and they don't care if they miss school, so then they're going to fail. Maybe. Maybe is what I have to say with that. Every parent I've ever worked with who is so over the edge of waking this constant, exhausting, frustrating morning routine of waking their teen up, every day you say to your teen, I'm so tired of this. You've got to get yourself up in the morning. And then you go in in the morning and you try and wake them up 10 times. You've got to get up for school. You've got to get up for school. Wake up. You've got to get up. And then eventually somehow dragging them by the ear or the hair, you get them out of their bed or like, I'm not condoning abuse, but like you imagine to get them up in the car and to school, maybe they're even still half asleep. Why would your teenager take the responsibility of waking up when your words don't match your actions and you keep waking them up? This is such a good point, Allie, but I cannot tell you how difficult this yes, is. Yes, it do. is. It, that yes, is, it is. I think it is the most difficult thing to do is to let, as a parent, to let your child deal with the consequences of their own actions. Yes. It's so hard. It is so hard. It is so hard because we are trained that parenting is morality. And so if our parent, if our child is late or misses school, we are, and then we do, we get shaming messages home from the school. I just want to say that's not okay either. Your teen will change. Your teen's behavior will change when your behavior changes. And that is a, a sad and, and very harsh truth. Um, but it's also a very empowering one. Because when you can not say to your teen in a shaming way, that's it. Adley said, I'm not waking you up in the morning. It's on you. You're going to burn if you don't. Like, no, no, no. We're not going to do that either. No, we're not going from black to white. Welcome to the middle ground. So we're going to say, look, I know this isn't working. It's not working for me. It's not working for you. I don't want this kind of resentment between us anymore. I'm tired of that. I am going to make an agreement with you. And this is going to take us a little bit of time to figure out our success path on this. I will... We're going to get you one of those alarm clocks that goes off in the other end of the your room because if it's next to us, what do we do? We hit snooze. Something that literally physically makes you get up and turn off the sound. I will come in and wake you up uh, two times at this time and this time. If you don't get up, you will be late for school. I am not waiting in the driveway. I am leaving at this time. You're either in the car or you're not because I'm going to teach you what it means to keep my word. And then... 
you can call the school and tell them why you're late and you can get assignments. And yes, if there is truancy fines, you, we will help you figure out how you are going to pay the fine. As usual, you bring some hard truths to the table, Allie. And I am wishing parents all the success uh, on this this month because it is a difficult month. But you're right. You have to empower your kids. We are raising them to be successful adults. So this is part of that that adulting process. Mm-hmm. So I can't thank you enough for joining me. Um, there, you have a blog up on whatshesaidtalk.com that goes into much finer detail on this very topic. So people should head over there and look. Of course, where can they connect with you everywhere else? Best place to find me um, in social media is at Allie Payne, A-L-Y-P-A-I-N on Instagram and TikTok or my website, AllyPayne.com. All right, Allie, sending uh, best wishes to all the parents out there this month. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) I believe in you. You can call me Queen B. It's time for Saturday Night at the Movies with Anne Brody. And Anne, you know that I don't like horror movies, but you brought me one today that I have to say I screamed, but with delight I know. when I saw Dan Aykroyd in it. We don't cover <laughs> horror because the world's hard enough, right? But this is exactly. a complete exception. It's such a delight to find Chevy Chase, Dan Aykroyd, Henry Zerny, fresh from uh, uh, Top Gun, Bruce McCullough, and Scott Thompson on the screen together. I was I was over the moon seeing all those faces because it's such a throwback for me. But the movie looks fun. Oh my god, it is so much fun, and I, it's not. It's for children and adults, but there's nothing that would offend or scare children. But it is so witty and so, you know, sophisticated in its humor. It's just the most unusual little film. I just love it. Um, Yes. So it's based on R.L. Stein's uh, best-selling novel series, Goosebumps, which I've never read. But apparently it's pretty popular. So they shot this thing in Sudbury. (laughs) And it's supposed to be small-town Canada where... uh, a horror filmmaker has gone to live. He's played by Dan Aykroyd. 30 years, he's refused to make any horror films, but apparently he has one. It's ready to be premiered in the local theater. So everyone's excited and he's hounded by fans, which he really does not like. So anyway, our lead guy, uh, a young fella um, and a girl who are fans he finds a copy of the film and shows it to her, but there's an unintended result. And that is it releases an ancient curse. This ancient curse, you know, zombies, it makes zombies, it makes life unbearable. So they've got to put a stop to it. Anyway, it follows their uh, adventures trying to do it. But just the, the greatest thing about it, it's so positive and uplifting. And you'll just roar if you watch the thing. And I would highly recommend you do. Oh, I listen, I laughed out loud through the whole trailer. I was yeah. delighted to see it. It was such a 
a positive thing to see this week for some reason, zombies, but it made me laugh. So highly recommend that one. I haven't even seen the, I haven't even seen the full movie, just the trailer. And I think yeah, people should go yeah, see it. Yeah. And that's um, what led with it. So, <laughs> so let's start, let's go on to the chain changeling. Now there's something that you wrote in the description of this that I want to point out. Now you said that this is a traumatic, a traumatic universe with tortured reality and simmers with anxiety. And all I could think yeah. was, and that is our reality right now. <laughs> I know, I know. And it's it's a horror fantasy, but again, it's kind of different. And the reason I went for it, because I don't like horror any more than you do. I dislike it. But it's because it stars Lakeith Stanfield from Get Out and all kinds of wonderful films. And he's an Oscar nominee. And I really like him. So he plays a guy who's married to a gal. They live in New York, and he's a book collector, rare book collector. So he's read all his life. He knows all about ancient mythology, particularly Scandinavian. And then uh, his wife becomes pregnant, and things start to change. So that sets off a, a chain of events that leads them into mystery worlds, that kind of stuff. So it was a pretty popular novel. But, you know, hey, to Lakeith Stan I, Stanfield, he's just one of my favorite actors right now. All right. That's on Apple TV, right? It is. September 8th. Yes. All right. Excellent. Now, the next two we're going to talk about are on the new streaming service you mentioned last show, which is called Viaplay, correct? Oh, it's so good, Candice. It's got great Scandinavian uh, comedy, noir, everything. And it's such a different style. It's just a very, again, I'm going to use the word sophisticated style as compared to, um, you know, a lot of Western product. But uh, yes, so in Face to Face, we have Lars Mickelson, brother of my huge crush, Mads Mickelson. <laughs> I was going to say, I... <laughs> Any opportunity you have to bring Mads in, and you do. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so he plays Holger Lang. He's a real estate developer in Copenhagen. And he's investigating the murder of a girl who was to be his heir. He's blocked the rest of his family from his massive fortune, and he gets it. Well, she's murdered, so he decides to investigate. So it's interesting because each episode concerns one of the suspects and how he questions him. It sounds like it would be hard to take up time for an episode, but it's so good. It's so realistic and real time. It's a most unusual approach to drama. So anyway, that's a great one, face to face. And then they have Limbo, which is based on a true story of a family of, you know, young guys and two other families. Well, one night the boys go out drinking and driving and one is uh, seriously brain damaged. So, you know, the pointing of the fingers, the, the, the suffering, the, you know, will he live the family dynamics? Very interesting. I mean, as, as gruesome as it sounds, it's actually very real in its portrayal of families and family dynamics. So, you know, that's very much worth watching. All right. Well, you've got all of these and obviously a whole bunch more over on uh, what she said talk.com. I hope you're not going to run out of material soon because the actors and the writer strike is still ongoing. 
Yes, well, I'm, I've got a director coming up soon, but no slim pickings till it's over. Oh, I'm sure you're going to find the best of the best out there for us uh, as we all wait for this to be resolved. Thanks, Anne, for joining me. We'll... No more horror. How's that? <laughs> we'll take a break from horror. All right. Thanks, Anne, for joining me. We'll see you next time. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. I am so excited to be diving into this next interview where we'll be taking a closer look at the world of hackers, but not in the way you might think. I'm joined by Kim Crawley, a cybersecurity researcher and writer with over a decade of experience. She's here to talk about her latest book, Hacker Culture A to Z, which promises to be an enlightening journey into the annals of hacking. From the early days of computer programming dominated by women to the modern day challenges of online security, Kim's expertise offers a unique perspective. And for those of you who've ever wondered about the dark web or how to protect your devices like a pro, you're in for a treat. Kim, welcome to what she said. It's an honor to be here. Thank you, Candace. So a lot of people hear the term hacker and immediately think of cyber criminals. Can you shed some light on why not all hackers are bad and the difference between a hacker and a cyber criminal? That is a great question, definitely. And I, I'm going to try and be succinct so I don't like blabber on for several hours, but the origin of the term hacker when, as it pertains to computers is at uh, MIT's Tech Model Railroad Club in the 1960s. And back then in that club, and it was, it was the nerdiest guys you could possibly think of the nerdiest guys you can imagine, like the cast of the Big Bang Theory or whatever, and, and then go even nerdier. And that's <laughs> what these guys were like. They were the they would do pranks with their they they didn't just work on model railroads that like they were into electronics and early computers, and if you could come up with a clever trick with technology, they called it a hack. Ah, you know, doing bad things with computer technology, harming people, that can also be a hack. Um, it's it's very controversial even in the tech industry the use of the word hacker. But to to emphasize how mainstream the positive use of the word hacker, like someone who is inventive with technology instead of someone who does bad things with technology. Um, the address of the well it was the Facebook headquarters. Now it's the Meta headquarters in uh, California is one hacker way. Yeah. So Steve Steve Jobs and and Steve Wozniak they were hackers, right? Yeah. Exactly. Okay. So, you know, a lot of times I think we're just, we become so quick to download an app or sign up with something. Nobody reads the terms and conditions of what they're signing up for. At least I suspect you do though. Uh, so for people who are listening, you know, how can they up their security game? Do you have any tips for how they can protect their phones and their personal computers? I am really glad at how much security has improved both on iOS and iPhones 
and on Android devices. Because in the beginning, like, you know, in the around 2007, 2010, there wasn't a whole lot that users could do without installing their own security apps. But now I think the most important improvement there's been is permissions. You notice now every time you try to install a new app, whether you've got an iPhone or an Android phone, it asks you, do you want to give it your microphone? Do you want to give it access to your contacts, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, you might not have to give the app all of those permissions, depending on how you want to use the app, right? Like if you got like Instagram, for instance, obviously you're going to want to give it your camera. But Candy Crush doesn't need access to my microphone and my camera, Crush, right? No. So <laughs> uh, it, it's it's frustrating because I really want to help people secure their technology and their data. But so much of that is outside of our hands. Like a lot of the work that I do isn't focused on consumers and ordinary people. It's focused on big corporations and big enterprises. Like right now, my day job for the, for at least the next few months is working for a cybersecurity research firm called IOActive, which is based in Seattle, Washington. And they don't focus on you know, malware that you might get as an ordinary person in your email or whatever. They are focused on security problems in the computers that are in embedded into machines and factories and embedded into uh, commercial jetliners and stuff like that. that. That's their main focus. So, but there is a lot that the ordinary, I think another big thing that really impressed me was I think from like Windows 8 onward, uh, Windows Defender actually became a quite decent antivirus application. So you could go and install your own antivirus application, but right. as if you, in security, one of the things that's really important to us now is to focus less on the user making mistakes and more on, you know, making the default settings more secure. And no ordinary person should feel bad or stupid because, you know, they got infected with malware or someone got their username and password to their Facebook account or whatever. You should never feel ashamed about that. I mean, it happens to the best people. It happens to people with computer science degrees sometimes. I can understand that. And, and, and you know, the other thing that fascinates me about this is the concept of the dark web. I mean, it seems so like this untouchable space. I mean, I wouldn't know how to find the dark web if, you know, if my life depended on it. Can you elaborate on like, what is it? How, why is it? <laughs> I just, it's such a foreign concept. That's a good question. There are two different technologies that form the basis of the dark web and like the dark net in general. There's a Tor, which is a massive proxy network. And then there's I2P, which is another massive proxy network. And without getting too technical for your audience, what, what happens when you connect to these networks is instead of the connection going like straight from your computer or your phone to the website, what happens is it goes through several other computers and each of those computers along the chain only knows the address to the computer it was talking to and then to the next computer it needs to talk to. 
So in that way, when you access these websites, it's a lot more difficult to trace it back to you, to where your computer or your Right. So I would have an IP address, right? That's how you could identify me. But if I go through this network, you can't follow me. Is that right? It's very difficult anyway, a lot more difficult than when you're on the normal part of the internet, right? These technologies were not developed by cyber criminals. They were developed at the beginning by the U.S. military. Like, you would be surprised. And my book goes through that a lot. How many of the computer technologies we use every day were initially a part of, like, DARPA, for instance, which is... The, the U.S. agency that develops a lot of these computer technologies. It's fascinating. So I, I wonder if you could tell me then about sort of the hacker ethos. <laughs> because I, I'd just heard about this when I was, you know, pulling together questions for you. I've, I've never heard of this. So what is it? Okay. It, to me, it's knowledge should be free. You know, the Internet has given us unprecedented access to information. Um, whenever you see... You know, and I'm going to do a media tour and I'm going to be on a lot of these commercial websites. And I can understand that, you know, a newspaper or magazine needs to make money from what they're doing. So I can understand why paywalls exist. But the hacker ethos would be all of that knowledge should be freely available, whether you're paying for it or not. All right. Excellent. So what's next for you then? You've got this book out and you're going on tour yeah, well, I'm going on tour mainly in my home office. Isn't that great? <laughs> that's the that's the magic of the internet again, right? You know, you know, I have an absolutely great PR agent, uh, Rebecca Epstein. I don't know all the outlets I'm going to be speaking with yet, but I'm really, really honored that my first media appearance is a Canadian radio show that focuses on women because uh, I'm a Canadian woman. That's amazing. I'm that makes me so happy. I'm thrilled. Um, so what do you hope people walk away with then from this book? This book, I I really intend to be accessible to everyone. I'm actually writing another book right now, which is highly technical. And this is the much less technical, more approachable book. My publisher asked me at the beginning, like, how should this book be read? Who is it for? And I said, if you were a real super nerd, you could read it from beginning to end. If you could read it kind of like a coffee table, like you don't have to read it in any particular order. It's a whole bunch of terminology and concepts from like A to Z. You don't have to read it in any particular order. It's not chronological or anything like that. If you were super nerdy, I also suggested that you could create a little computer program that that randomly tells you which letter you should start with. Or you could just like read it like a coffee table book and just like randomly skim the pages. None of the entries are more than a few pages each. Incredible. All right. Well, I'm I'm fascinated. So I can't wait to get my hands on it. So where can people find your book and keep up with you and all that you share? Okay. Well, as far as buying my book is concerned, it will be available literally everywhere that you can buy new books. So Amazon, you know, Indigo Chapters here in Canada. You know, I don't know if there might be Americans listening on the internet. So like Barnes and Noble in the United States. Uh, a whole bunch of book retailers that I can't even think of right now. You, they'll probably be available there. Um, ebooks. I love ebooks too. There's ebook versions of all of these as well. So if you like buying your books from the app store or whatever, it'll be available there too. All right. And as far as everything I'm doing is concerned, 
I have a link tree. So it's a L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Kim Crawley, K-I-M-C-R-A-W-L-E-Y. All right. Incredible. I'm going to put all those links uh, when this goes out on podcast um, after airs on the radio. And Kim, thank you so much for joining me. It was a pleasure meeting you. It was a great honor. Thank you, Candice. Give him the word that I'm not a rover. Then tell him that his lonesome nights are over. You will want to stick around for this next interview because it's a topic that many of us can resonate with. It's the mysterious 3 a.m. wake-up call when sleep eludes and thoughts whirl. Joining us to decode this phenomenon is Kelly Boss, a seasoned psychotherapist and a leading Canadian relationship expert. With her TV show Well Said and as the co-owner of Muskoka Mind and Body and Couch Counseling and Psychotherapy, Kelly brings a wealth of knowledge on mental well-being. Let's unravel the mystery of the 3 a.m. wake-up call with Kelly. Welcome back, Kelly. Thank you for having me, Candice. I love that you're here. And it's all related because I posted on Facebook that I woke up at three o'clock and I could not get back to sleep and just was so tired. And and so many people jumped into my comments because we're all struggling with this. So can you explain this? Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's not uncommon. I think the reason you had so many comments on the Facebook is because people had done it earlier that week or the week before. They also had the 3 a.m. <laughs> people call it monkey brain or busy brain. And sometimes we cannot shut off the thoughts. I think that's usually what's happening. Sometimes you just can't sleep and you're not really identifying with um, a lot of worried thinking. But I think a lot of us, it just seems like the perfect time for our brain to think about what are the many worries I can bring up today? Worries that I haven't thought of in two years, worries that aren't even that relevant the next day, like our brain just latches onto anything. But why Why wake up? Why, why are you in a dead sleep and then suddenly you're wide awake and your mind just won't stop racing? Well, I don't always think we know. Um, sometimes, it, it, sometimes it is about a bit of a pattern, like maybe biologically things are going on or there's noises or something's waking you up. Um, and sometimes I think that that we then latch on to that little bit of wakefulness and then we're awake, we're thinking about things and it goes from one to another. And as I talked about, you know, it, it can be things we didn't even think were a problem and our 3 a.m. brain is not our best advisor. It's not. No kidding. <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry, but you, you say that you mentioned that we can interrupt our thinking even at this odd hour. So absolutely. Let's, let's dive into some skills and strategies for this. Yeah. Absolutely. So what happens is we we get woken up in the at some for some reason, um, and we our brains start to find those worries, and we think worrying helps. It doesn't, but we think. I, I tell clients all the time: if I gave you an hour to think about this, or another five minutes, are you going to really come up with that many more solutions in the next hour in your sleepy brain, with its bent on problem solving? It's not good. So I, you know, what we need to do is interrupt it. And the, the biggest thing with this is learning to interrupt it with something we believe because our brain will reject the things that we don't believe. So for example, if I said, it's okay, I'll just go back to sleep and I don't actually feel the problem's okay, then that's problematic. So I remember 
doing this. I was teaching a lot of anxiety courses at the time, and I thought, okay, physician, heal thyself. Like I should really try and interrupt this. So what I started saying to myself in at 3 a.m., if I had a worry that was keeping me up, I'd say, I don't need to think about this right now. And the truth was, I believed that. I do. I 100% believe that this is not the time. So it really helped me go back to sleep. And you know, maybe it takes a little coaching. Maybe it's like, I can pick up on this tomorrow at eight when I wake up. I can think about this more later. Like something that you believe that will tell that your brain will accept and be more adaptive, which is I can think about this tomorrow. This is a super useful technique in interrupting those worried thoughts. And so for people who regularly wake up at 3 a.m., what additional resources or practices would you recommend? So Obviously, sometimes it's definitely talking to your doctor. There might be something else going on. You know, I'm not a physician. I'm a psychotherapist. So I'm just telling you some things that have helped my clients. Um, So any kind of uh, the CBTI, it's CBT for insomnia. If you ever see a course on that, that can be very useful. Um, It does a couple things. One is that it's going to help you interrupt your thinking. But it also looks at the time you go to bed and how much time you're spending in bed and really looking at your sleep hygiene as well. And it's a whole course that can help you sort out some of the sleep issues. Those are great things. And then a simple pen and paper. Sometimes we are awake because we don't want to forget something. We'll think, I got it. I got to remember to call the dentist tomorrow. And then we repeat it over and over and over. So sometimes it helps. It's better out than in is just grab that piece of paper, jot it down, and then you can look at it tomorrow. Hopefully it's legible. I've heard that people should get up. You know, yes. if, if you can't get back to sleep, you should actually just get up. Is that yeah. true? That absolutely. That That is after a certain amount of time. We're looking at 15 or 20 minutes. If it's just like you've gone up, got to pee, you know, you're up for a little bit. But if you're lying there for what seems like a significant time and you've tried to interrupt your thought and say, don't think about this now, then you can get up. They suggest doing something fairly rote, like maybe it's, organizing the silverware or it's um, reading a book or something not too exciting. Um, Some people say like read the fridge manual, like really make it boring. But I've heard you can also just read for a bit. And then what they usually get you to do is go to bed when you're actually sleepy, when your eyes are heavy, so that you start associating bed with the place you can sleep, not the place you can't sleep, which lying in bed awake does. Good advice. You know, I, I, we were talking prior and, and we, there are so many things out there that we can take anymore uh, to help us sleep, but I worry that those things are addictive and habit-forming, and obviously the best way to get to sleep is naturally, and the best way to stay asleep is naturally. So you talk about this. You share things all the time on your social media channels. Where can people keep up with you for, for more advice on on sleep and, of course, a host of other things we're dealing with in 2023? Yes. So you can find me on Instagram at Kelly Boss Therapy, Facebook, Kelly Flanagan Boss Therapy. Um, my website is kellyboss.com. It's one S. And then I'm I'm often popping in on different things like visiting this fabulous show and uh, giving tips there as well. All right. Incredible. Kelly, thanks so much for joining me today. And here's to a good night's sleep. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Bring us, please, 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 Mr. Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. 
Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. Would you like to know how to thrive, not just survive in the music business? My next guest has got your back. Tara Shannon wears many hats and has achieved more success than most independent music artists ever have. Her journey has defied the odds as she re-entered the music industry as a woman in her 40s and quickly gained an audience locally, nationally, and internationally. Her experiences in teaching workshops and classes inspired her to write a book called You and the Music Business. Business, a self-care guide to finding balance and joy in today's music industry to empower other independent artists who find themselves on a similar path. She joins me now. Welcome to What She Said, Tara. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So can you elaborate for us on how life coaching principles intersect with the challenges faced by modern day music makers? <laughs> That's a great question. Yes, because my coaching does feel like life coaching for sure. Um, it intersects because artists as music creators, they themselves are the product. And so um, learning how to manage your life that in a way that has balance and joy and connection to self, but then also be able to bring in your business mind and see yourself as a product that the world is consuming, that's a really tricky thing. And so our the coaching is focused on how to do that in a healthy and sustainable way. Yeah, I mean, I I feel what you just said there probably applies to every artist over years and years, you know, because you do become the product and it's hard to keep your mental health intact Absolutely. when, when you are being consumed essentially uh, by by people. So you mentioned the importance of, of being successful in the business of you before succeeding in the music business. So can you share some personal experiences that led you to this realization? Sure. Um, my background is actually in business in different industries, not just music, because I took a break from raising my uh, so I took a break from music to raise my family. I have five boys and two girls. And um, during that time, I started a group of companies with their dad in a different industry. I just want to say with that many kids, you should be writing a parenting book as well. That's <laughs> well, yeah. the next thing. <laughs> I, my parenting book would start with what not to do. <laughs> the next cha 10 chapters are all the things not to do. Um, <laughs> I think we just all need to support each other with parenting because goodness gracious, it's a challenge. Um, yeah, so I think I, I've always had a business mind. And I talk about that a little bit in the book. So my mind has always been wired that way for for business and just seeing how to take an opportunity um, and and turn it into something that that generates income. So I think with the my background in business and the way that you know, I've experienced business, one thing I learned is that business really, no matter what the industry is, comes down to people, because every business is creating a product or a service for people. And every business is made up of people. So if you understand people, you really understand business, no matter what you're selling or what you're providing. And to understand people, you really need 
the best way is to understand yourself. So, you know, this internal journey, this journey inward and connection to self and connecting to your your higher self, authentic self, whatever language works, um, it really is the best guidance system to navigating business. Because if you understand your motivations and sort of the psychology of, of motivations and what, 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 why we make the decisions we make to meet the needs that we we need to meet really is the underpinning or the foundation for for business. How do you inspire artists then, especially women, to take charge of their careers and not wait for external validation or permission? And honest to God, I feel this question applies to everything in life. <laughs> It's so true. I mean, it took me a long time to to really harness that, but we, you know, in music, we're we're kind of fed this Cinderella story sort of, you know, that's like you need to slug it out, you know, in the trenches until somebody with power discovers you and deems mm-hmm. you specialer than everybody else and plucks you from the masses and elevates you to stardom. So it's it's a very disempowering <laughs> message and it's it's continuously um, perpetuated with like these talent search type shows and stuff. And it's nothing that it's those things aren't inherently wrong. But a lot of artists go into it believing a particular thing will ha- will happen and not really understanding the function or the structure of those shows and who they're actually there to service, which is the television audience. So, you know, we're fed this kind of, you know, somebody will come along and 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 make your life magical. And really, it's up to it's up to us to, you know, not wait for somebody else to give us permission to live the life that we envision for ourselves. And I think that's particularly true for women. And because we often, and this happened to me, which is why I can speak to it is, you know, I lost myself under the title of mother, wife, business owner, friend, um, you know, daughter, sister, under all of these other titles, like me, the the stuff that makes me me kind of got buried and lost. And so it took a while for me to excavate her again and bring her back to the surface and be like, oh, hello, there you are. <laughs> and what life would you like to live for yourself if you stopped living for everybody else around you? Because there's kind of a messaging, I don't know if you agree, but with women, it's like when you start using language like this is what I need, this is what I want to do with my life, it's connected to selfishness right out oh. right out of the gate, I find. Sister, you are preaching to the choir. I hear you on this. And honestly, I don't have a musical bone in my body, but I'm listening to you talk and I need to read this book. So I want people to be able to find you. Obviously, you are a wealth of wisdom here um, and, and find the book. So where can they do all of that? Um, the best place to go is my website, which is www.jointerra.com. And there's links to the book there. You can also go directly to amazon.ca uh, or .com. And they can find me on socials at I am Tara Shannon or join Tara Shannon. Incredible. Tara, I can't thank you enough for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for What She Said this week. Stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at whatshesaidtalk.com and be sure to follow on social at What She Said Talk on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for videos of these interviews and more. You can also catch me on TikTok at Candace Said. Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to catch past episodes and extended podcasts. I'll be back next week with another What She Said on 105.9 The Region. And when-
the night is cloudy, there is still a light that shines on me. Shine until tomorrow, let it be. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.